Father, we just continue to come to you here this morning. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for your amazing grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you for your power, your authority, your holiness, your righteousness. We give you all the glory for who you are. We just ask now that you speak through your word, soften our hearts and minds to receive your word and to be doers of your word and not hearers only to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we begin our new summer sermon series, walking through this book, James, a living faith. And so you can turn to James 1, verse 1. And as you're turning there to kind of kick off this series, I want us to kind of imagine several scenarios. The first one begins with you before a bike. You're five six years old, and perhaps you've never been on a bike before, and there you are standing before this bike. And for just a moment, you get a glimpse, you get a vision into the future. And in that vision, you see yourself climbing aboard that seat, pushing those pedals. You begin to feel the wind on your face. You feel like you're flying. But then you hit a bump. Your handlebars begin to swivel. And then you jerk. You go flying forward. Smack. You hit the pavement. Immediately you feel pain. You look down at your hands, your knees. You feel even your forehead. And there's blood everywhere. Falling onto that warm, hot asphalt. Tears are now welling up in your eyes. So there you are, before the bicycle, and you have this vision, you see what's about to happen, you know what's going to happen. The question I have for you is, do you then ride the bike? Now, most of us would say, absolutely not. And we respond that way because we've been trained to believe that we must avoid all suffering at all cost. We've been trained to believe to eliminate any and all suffering at any and all cost. Thus, we will avoid the bike. No, thank you. It's not for me. It will only cause me suffering. Warren Wiersbe says, outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. Another way you might paraphrase what I just said is our belief determines our behavior. For example, let's go back there to the beginning, there before the bike. And let's imagine you're standing before that bike and you believe deep down inside, despite the suffering that's coming, You believe that your life is not your own, that all that you are and all that you have, all that which you do and will do belongs to another, that you are under the authority and leadership and guidance of another, one specifically whom you love very, very deeply. You might even say one like that of a good father, one that you know who loves you very, very much, and one that you can trust with your very life. 
And let's suppose also that he is the one who called you to get onto that bike. And he's standing there, right there with you. And he promises that he's never leaving. He's always going to be right there. No matter what happens, he's going to be there. Let's also suppose that he provides you a glimpse, a vision, a dream of what is to become or what is to come beyond the suffering. And you believe that what is to come after his words, after his vision, after his dream that he gives you, his glory, its honor, its victory, its authority, that you will drive or ride that bike like a pro. That you will hop on top of that seat, guide those pedals, those handlebars with full and complete ownership. Maybe not today, but one day. And all the days of your life, joy and gladness will consume you as you ride that bike like a pro. And that no matter what, whether you skin the knee or you are riding like a pro, he's still there with you. With that in mind, do you ride the bike now? Outlook, perspective, worldview, attitude, belief, it determines and changes everything. Let's do another one. Let's imagine you're standing at the edge of a field. And you're debating on entering that field. And as you're standing there, you, in that moment, get a glimpse of the future, what is to come. And in that vision, you see yourself entering that field and getting jumped, beaten up, not by strangers, not by thieves, but by your own flesh and blood, your brothers, those closest to you. And after they beat you up, they strip you of everything of value that you have on you, treating you like a piece of trash. And then they decide to sell you like a piece of cloth to utter strangers, just to show you how much they really think about you. And from that point, you're in slavery. And while you're in slavery, you're a victim of injustice, wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned. So there you now find yourself behind bars, and you make yourself vulnerable to some others who are in prison with you, and one of them takes advantage, and then he leaves you, and you're forgotten, lost in obscurity, a nobody, utterly and completely alone in the darkness of that prison for hours Days, weeks, months, years. So there you are standing before that field, knowing this, seeing this. Do you still enter the field? Now, most of us would say absolutely not. And we respond that way because we've been trained to believe that we must avoid all suffering at all costs. Thus, I will avoid the field. No, thank you. It's not for me. Going into that field is only going to cause me suffering. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. Belief determines behavior. Now, let's back up for a moment, and there you are before that field. 
And despite what you have seen into the future, you also believe that your life is not your own. That all that you are and all that you have and all that which you do and will do belongs to another. That you're under the authority and leadership and guidance of another, one specifically whom you love very, very deeply. You might say one like that of a good father, one who loves you very, very much, one you trust with your very life. And let's suppose that he's the one who called you into that field. Let's also suppose that you have seen a glimpse, a vision, a dream of what is to come beyond the suffering. And you believe that what is to come is glory, honor, victory, authority, that your Father will one day stand before you and next to you, and that the Lord himself will be with you all your days in suffering and out of suffering. Do you enter the field now? Outlook, perspective, worldview, belief, attitude, it changes everything. In Genesis 37, Israel. This is Abraham who had Isaac, Isaac who had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. This is the one set apart. This is the one who is loved by God. This is the one who loves God, Yahweh the Lord. Israel said to his son, the son whom he loved dearly, he said to Joseph, Joseph who loved his father, Joseph who trusted his life to his father. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Your brothers, who at this point Joseph would have known, hated him despised him. Aren't your brothers out in the field? Come, Joseph. I, your father, will send you, my only beloved, to them. You want to know what Joseph's response is? You can read it in Genesis 37. He says, here I am. And he went into the field. And he was betrayed. He was enslaved. He was imprisoned. But the Lord was with him all the days of his life. Outlook, perspective, attitude, belief, worldview. It changes everything. Now let's do one more. Now let's imagine you're standing before a pool of water. Kind of like Caroline and Colton just stood before a pool of water. And thousands of people are watching you. They know who you are. They know your face. They know your identity. They know your family. They know your occupation. They know what neighborhood you live on. They know your house. They know where they can find you, what community you're from. And you, let's suppose, internally in that moment, you see what lies beyond the water. That once you step into that water, many will betray you. You will face injustices. You will be forced from your home. You will be driven out from everything that you worked so hard and so long for. You'll be wrongfully accused. You'll be jumped and beaten. You'll be treated like trash. And you may even spend time behind bars or worse yet, tortured and murdered. Not by strangers. Not by thieves. But perhaps by your own family. Or by the established government. Or by the quote-unquote pastors and priests of the day. 
do you enter the water? Now, most would say absolutely not. We respond that way because we've been trained to believe that we must avoid all suffering at all cost. I'm better off numb to the reality and the sufferings of this world. No, 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 I'm better off lost in a video game. No, 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 I'm better off lost in entertainment. No, 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 I'm better off lost in a TV show. No, 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 I'm better off lost in sports. No, 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 I'm better off lost in just travel and travel and travel and go, go, go and busyness, busyness, business. I'm just better off just finding my place in the world and just becoming like them. We've been trained to believe I must avoid all suffering at all costs, no matter what that means. So I will avoid the water. No, thank you. It's not for me. Going down into that water only means a life of suffering. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. Belief determines behavior. But what if we backed up for a moment, standing there at the edge of that water? And yes, you see the suffering to come. But you also believe that your life is not your own. That all you are and all that you have and all that what you do and will do belongs to another. That you're under the authority and leadership and guidance of another. One specifically whom you love very, very deeply. You might say one like that of a good father. One you know who loves you very, very much. And let's suppose that he called you into the water. To die. To follow him into the unknown, into the darkness, into the valley, onto that bike, into that field. Let's also suppose that he's given you a glimpse, a vision, a dream of what is to come beyond the suffering. And you believe, because of that, that what is to come is glory, it's honor, it's victory, it's authority. That your light and momentary troubles and sufferings are achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And that he has promised to be with you all the days of your life and beyond. Just like with Joseph. Just like the father next to his child on the bike. Do you then, standing before that water, do you then enter now? Outlook, perspective, worldview, attitude, belief, it changes everything. Pentecost is next week. It marks the 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus in which we celebrate that. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. But Pentecost is the day that we read in Acts in which the Holy Spirit finally came. This is something spectacular and beautiful. And some 2,000 years ago on Pentecost, 3,000 men and women entered the water under those circumstances. And within days, months, years, faced excruciating suffering. But they believed in the one who they followed. In the same way, Joseph entered the field. In the same way, Abraham walked up that mountain. In the same way, Noah built that boat. In the same way, Esther walked into the king's room. In the same way, Rahab protected the spies. In the same way, David faced Goliath. In the same way, Gideon went down into the valley that night with just the 300. They declared to their master, their Messiah, their God, Yahweh, their Father in heaven, whom they loved the one who loved them, here am I. I'm not my own. I'm yours. Everything I am, it's yours. It's in that respect, in that sentiment, in that frame of heart and mind, soul and body in which James writes these words in verse 1. Look at verse 1. 
He says, James, a servant, a, a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the title, means Messiah, anointed one. James, a servant, a slave of God and of the Master and Messiah, Jesus. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, of the dispersion, of the diaspora, of the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. The title today, Master and Messiah, as we introduce this book, what we have with this short letter, as one commentary says, is probably the first New Testament document written, early to mid-40s, roughly perhaps five to ten years after Jesus ascended to his world. Many believe it's the first existing Christian writing of any kind that we know of. And James is writing to a group of primarily Jewish Christian congregations. These are ethnic Jews who are now followers of Jesus. But it's very clear that he intends for this book to be directed at all believers. His recipients are somewhere outside of Israel. Many believe toward the eastern end of the Mediterranean basin, perhaps in Syria. Either way, they are scattered about. They are dispersed. They are out of their homeland. They are people not at home. In short, according to another one, he's writing to communities who are under extreme stress. Whether we're talking material possessions kind of stress or relationally. This stress comes through external pressure by the wicked world, but also internal pressure from the demands of their relational circumstances, which we'll look at in this series. But it is a letter by James to these believers, and it's all around exhortation, commands. There's over 50 commands in this little letter. And it's meant for all believers, again. But who is this James? Who is this man behind the letter? So there's multiple different James that we see in Scripture. There's a couple of the 12 that are called James, right? Son, son of Zebedee is one of them. But this James, most people believe, and I believe as well, is the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. James is one of them. We see this affirmed also in the gospel accounts. But James is one of them. Jude is another one. But James is the half-brother of Jesus. And as we read, especially in the book of Acts, he has become this chief pillar, this chief elder, this leader in the early church. Largely because of his close association with Jesus and the fact that even Paul would argue that he saw the resurrected Jesus. He has extreme important authority in the early church. But he sees himself as a slave to God. Not out of coercion or, un, or not because he's unwilling, but freely he has given his life to the ownership of God. Submitted himself to God. And to Jesus, his half-brother, the one he grew up with, the one he ate breakfast with, the one who was a human in every respect that you and I are human, in every respect that James was a human, the one who 
he laughed with and cried with and walked on long journeys with. His half-brother. But he submits himself to Jesus, not because Jesus is his half-brother. He submits himself to Jesus as his master and Messiah. He submits himself to Jesus as his master and Messiah, Lord Christ Jesus. And what's interesting in the opening is James does not point out his relationship to Jesus as bragging rights. Hey, by the way, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You better respect me in this matter. He doesn't even mention it. He does not even point out his position in the church as bragging rights. Hey, this is who I am. You better listen to me. According to a guy by the name of Didymus, he was arrived in the 4th century in the 300s. He said, listen, those are the world who wish to glorify themselves. They play up their qualifications when they write letters or when they begin YouTube channels or when they stand in pulpits and write books. They're all about their qualifications. But by contrast, the apostles begin their letters by noting simply that they are slaves of God and Christ. James is a fellow slave under the master Messiah Jesus, despite Jesus being his half-brother, despite the fact that he is a pillar in the church. James sees himself as one standing before the bike, as one standing before the edge of the field, the one standing at the edge of the pool of water. And his outlook, his attitude, his worldview, his perspective, his belief is Father God's master Messiah Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, here I am. You love me. You're with me in suffering and out of suffering. Here I am. I'm yours. I love you. I'm all yours. And it's an outlook, an attitude, a worldview, a perspective, a belief that aligns with that of Jesus himself. Jesus, as we're told in places like Hebrews 12 and Philippians 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, though he was in the form of God, though he had bragging rights or justification for bragging rights, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, a servant who came to do the Father's will. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even suffering and death on a cross. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. What was beyond the suffering? He endured learning to ride the bike. He endured the field. He endured the suffering that came with entering down into that water. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. James likewise sees himself under the master and Messiah, God himself, under Jesus, under God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. His disposition is here am I, just as Jesus himself did under the Father. And this statement here in James chapter 1, verse 1, is a belief that drove James's behavior his action, his very life. And according to tradition, 
it's believed that James was killed in AD 62. Not even 20 years after he penned this letter. And according to the tradition, this is how he died. Pharisees, ethnic Jews, who should know who the Messiah is and the Master, religious leaders, had James cast down from the temple, and then they had him beaten to death with clubs. And according to the story, when James died, he also did as Jesus did, and he prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. James, a slave, a servant of God and of the master Messiah, Jesus. Here am I. I'm all in. I'll ride the bike. I'll go into the field. I'll enter the water. No matter what is to come, I'm all yours. And this statement is foundational for this letter and for James's life, and it sets the tone for the whole book. It's the beginning moment of it all. And when you and I, when we embrace and believe that statement and we live it, it radically shapes and impacts how we live in the midst of trials and temptations, how we speak to one another, how we act and react. It radically transforms our relationship with the world, to the world, how we respond to current events, trends, and movements, how we spend our time and our resources, how we navigate our relationships with believers and unbelievers. It impacts how we interact with the rich and the poor, and whether or not we show favoritism. This statement, believed, it radically determines whether or not we are a true believer or only one in pretense. In other words, if we cannot write this statement with a sincere heart and mind and soul as James did, and if it cannot be validated or proved by our lives, James would argue that we have a problem. We lack a living faith and instead possess a dead faith. So James subtly yet powerfully is declaring to his recipients, we must all come under the authority and lordship of God and of our master and Messiah, Jesus. No matter the cost, no matter the suffering, we must submit to him, reorient our entire lives, all of our affairs, everything under his lordship, under his power and authority. We must say, here am I, I'm all yours. Think of it like this. This past week, Timothy Keller, he's a pastor, theologian, author, Christian apologist, very influential for many. Well, this past week, he passed away after a several-year battle with cancer. Many people were saying things about him, posting videos about him, just talking about his influence on their life or something. A lot of things written on him. Well, one of the things posted by a person stuck out to me, and he was quoting a book that had been written about Timothy Keller. And in the book, the context of the quote is Tim Keller is giving his own perspective about an event that happened while he was in college at a Christian retreat. 
And so he's giving it his own perspective during this event. And the speaker that day was a woman by the name of Barbara Boyd. First name Barbara, last name Boyd. And according to Timothy Keller, this is what Barbara Boyd said that day that radically changed his life. She said, if you want to invite me into your house, and you say, come on in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd. Come on in, Jonathan, but stay out, Gilliland. She said, I wouldn't know what to do, because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I couldn't even say this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd. I'm all Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both. So you either get me all or you get neither of me. Then she said to her audience, Timothy Keller being there in the audience, if you say and believe, I would like the loving Jesus. I would like the helping Jesus. I would like the Jesus I can ask to help me through the hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus, the master and Messiah Jesus. I don't want the powerful Jesus. I don't want the Jesus who is great. She said, then you get no Jesus at all. She said, listen, think about this for a moment. If the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper. So picture the distance between the earth and the sun. And she said, listen, if it was the thickness of a piece of paper, that 96 million miles was equivalent to the thickness of a piece of paper. She said, do you realize then the distance from the earth to the closest or nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high, each of them representing 96 million miles. Along these same lines, did you know that every 1.5 millionth of a second, the sun releases more energy than all humans combined in one year? The amount of energy coming from the sun reaching the earth every two minutes is more energy than all the humans, the 8 billion of us, more than all the energy we consume in one year. And we're trying so hard to gain energy, conserve it, build it, create it. We look like a bunch of fools. She says that the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper. It would equal 70 feet high each one of the 96 million miles if you were to go to the closest star. She said, then listen, That means just the diameter of our little galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, would be a stack of papers. Each one, 96 million miles. It'd be a stack of papers, 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. She would say like this, Jesus holds the universe together with his pinky. And after all that, this is the question she asked to that group of people, Timothy Keller in the audience. She smiled and then she asked them, listen, do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? 
or just a reference? The better question is, the better phrase is, does he call you into his life to follow him as your assistant? No. And the question rocked Tim Keller's life so much so that his conclusion to God, to the Master Messiah Jesus was, here am I. I'm all yours. And the ones who truly believe in Jesus, who truly follow him, they submit to him as Master and Messiah. They reorient their entire lives, all of their affairs, everything under his lordship, under his power and authority. They radically shift and alter their worldview and perspective to everything and in everything. And they simply say, Father, God, Master, Messiah, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I'm your doulos. I'll get on the bike. I'll enter the field. I'll climb down into the water. I'll pick up my cross and follow you, no matter the suffering. And I'll do that because I know that you're with me. And he's given us just a glimpse, a vision of the glory to come beyond the suffering. I'll finish with this. As Peter said this, 1 Peter 5, he said, listen, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, after you've skinned your knee and blood's poured onto the hot asphalt, after you've been betrayed and beaten and imprisoned and enslaved, after you've lost everything, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Let us say, as James said, a servant of God and of the master Messiah, Jesus. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to invite our team forward. Some of us, we are followers of Jesus in pretense. We speak it, we don't live it. Largely because we're seeking to avoid any and all suffering at all cost. So we're numb. Just following through the motions, just like this world is, seeking to get lost in all sorts of empty wells. The God, creator, of everything is calling you into a relationship with him under his lordship leadership power and authority he loves you he cares for you he says listen you're going to suffer the world will hate you they'll betray you they'll sell you like a piece of cloth they'll take advantage They may even torture and murder you. 
But man, for the joy set before you, endure the cross, just as the founder and perfecter of the faith did, who is Jesus. Take the disposition, the belief, that you are a slave, a servant of God and of the Master Messiah, Jesus. And that belief will determine your behavior. It will determine your life. So answer that calling. Lord, here I am. And for some of us who have strayed away, man, he's calling us back to him. So here in a moment, I'm going to pray. These steps are open to you. If you want to have any decision before the Lord, he's calling you now. These steps are open to you. We'll be down here at the front if you need to talk to us. If you need somebody to pray with you. If you want to follow through in baptism, whatever it is the Lord's leading you to do, now is that time to respond. Father, we thank you. We love you. We are your servants. We humble ourselves. And we thank you for the joy set before us. Help us then to stand firm amidst the suffering, the temptations, the trials. Help us not to be lovers of this world, but lovers of you. We cannot have two masters. It's impossible. Help us to love Jesus before and above anything and everyone else. Help us to declare, here we are. We're yours. In Christ's name I pray. I ask that you stand with us as we sing. You come forward.